Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi there. Once again, this episode of the History of Egypt comes with a disclaimer. Many of the events that I'm about to describe are fragmented in the historical record. We don't know the specific dates or the order in which many of these events transpired, so while I've done my best to reconstruct things in a believable manner, there are definitely gaps that future research will change. Keep that in mind, and enjoy the show. Thanks! Iri Nini Enchen, greetings to you. Welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 124, Amorites 2, The Crimes of Aziru. This episode is the second in a two-part series detailing the rise and treachery of the kingdom of Amaru. After the calamitous and lengthy affairs of episode 123, the story continues as a new generation takes power in Amaru. At their head, the new leaders are epitomized in the deeds of Aziru, who would achieve so much more and commit so many more betrayals than his father ever dreamed. It is a dark chapter in the history of the Egyptian Empire. Let's explore. This episode is brought to you by Sarah, Matt, and Coffee Saxophone, who became patrons of the podcast in July 2019 and have stuck with me ever since. Sarah, Matt, Coffee, thank you kindly. Your support means the world, and I'm grateful for your gifts. As always, to everyone listening, wherever you are, thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy the story. The year was 1355 BCE, approximately. Egypt was at peace in military terms, but to the north, in Lebanon, the political situation was chaotic. The kingdom of Amaru was in retreat, its leader, Abdi Ashirta, was dead, and the warriors that he commanded were dispersing in the wake of Egyptian attack. After years of disorder, the pharaoh had reasserted his authority, and the kingdom of Amaru was defeated. Defeated, but not destroyed. When he died, Abdi Ashirta left behind sons, multiple young men who were willing and able to carry his legacy. These brothers, often known as the sons of Abdi Ashirta, were going to cause great havoc, just like their father before. But first, they had to gain permission to inherit their father's status. Abdi's sons were led by a man named Aziru. Aziru, or helper in the local language, was probably a mature man when his father died. He and his brothers inherited what authority was left in the royal household and pretty soon they started communicating with the Egyptians. Aziru and his brothers wanted to be recognised as vassals, official servants of the Egyptian pharaoh. Being a vassal had its perks. It gave you access to imperial administration and officials, and pharaoh's military protection or guarantees. For young men new to politics, this might have been an attractive proposition. 
So, not long after their father died, Aziru and his brothers started asking Egypt to recognize them. That would take some time, though. Following Abdi Ashurta's death, the Egyptian officials responsible for this region probably had their hands full undoing much of his work. There were towns to rebuild and repair, farming communities to restore, ships to construct, and tribute to gather. From their bastion of Sumer, a fortified town near the coast, Egyptian governors, or commissioners, were probably quite busy restoring their authority in the region. So, when young Aziru and his brothers came calling, they probably got short shrift for their requests. It seems that the Egyptian officials, pharaoh's representatives, refused to acknowledge Aziru for quite some time. We know this because Aziru himself wrote to the king of Egypt, complaining about the situation. Some time after his father's death, Aziru wrote to the pharaoh, promising to meet any request that the king might have, and denouncing those who said that he and his brothers were unfit to be vassals. Aziru said, quote, Say to the king, my lord, my god, my son, Message of Aziru, your servant. I fall at the feet of my lord seven times and seven times. May the king, my lord, know that I am your servant forever. I do not deviate from the orders of my lord. From the very first, I have wanted to enter the service of the king. But the magnates of Sumer do not permit me. I am innocent of dereliction of duty or the slightest thing against the king. The king, my lord, knows who the real rebels are, and whatever the other mayors have given, I too will give these to the king, my lord, my god, my son. I will give this forever. End quote. So, Aziru wrote a letter promising his loyalty and requesting recognition. Did it work? Well, sort of. We don't know if the pharaoh wrote back directly, but other letters indicate that one of Egypt's high officials did get in touch. One of Akhenaten's administrators, a man named Tutu, starts to appear in the record corresponding with Aziru. We will meet Tutu properly in a later episode. For now, it's enough to know that he was a high official close to the king who reported on the affairs of Akhenaten's vassals. In this capacity, Tutu dealt with Aziru directly. One of the letters gives a taste of how Aziru and Tutu negotiated the new relationship between Egypt and Amaru. Aziru promised all the riches that his country could provide if Tutu and Egypt would treat him as a friend. Aziru's message said, quote, For Tutu, my lord, my father, message of Aziru, your son, your servant, I fall at the feet of my father, or lord, for my father may all go well. Tutu, I hereby grant the request of the king, my lord, and whatever may be the request of the king, he should write it and I will grant it. Likewise, as you are in the court, whatever may be the request of Tutu, just write and I will grant it. As you are my father and I am your son, the land of Amaru is your land and my house is your house. End quote. Aziru wrote to the official as a father and a lord, reflecting his subservience towards the pharaoh's representative. The father title is not literal, it's honorary. Because Tutu had power over Aziru, he was like a father who had power over his children. Accordingly, 
Aziru gave Tutu his obedience, as a son should. Whatever Tutu or the king might need, Aziru was happy to comply. The next set of events is unclear, but it seems like Aziru did get Egypt's recognition eventually. At some point, the pharaoh acknowledged him as a vassal, and Amaru became, once again, a valid partner in Egypt's imperial network. It's surprising that Akhenaten did not choose to replace Aziru's family with one that was more trustworthy. He allowed the sons of Abdi Ashirta to inherit their father's position, instead of dividing that power up and giving it to other vassals. We can't be sure why. Some scholars suggest that the Amorites had allies at the court, who whispered in Akhenaten's ear. That's possible, but it's equally possible that Akhenaten and his officials saw the value in keeping an established family in power, rather than trying to reshape the kingdom entirely. Continuity is always useful in politics, then and now, especially when dealing with foreign affairs. Perhaps, for Akhenaten and Tutu, the sons of Abdi Ashirta were a more promising bet than some other family or group. Akhenaten let his governors handle affairs in Lebanon, and then eventually recognised Aziru as a vassal. Perhaps the pharaoh was distracted by other business, perhaps he didn't care that much. Or perhaps the delay was a punishment, a warning to the princes that their father's crimes were not forgotten. It's possible that Aziru and his kin had to wait years before gaining the acknowledgement they desired. These kinds of delays would have consequences down the line. Many years passed between the death of Abdi Ashirta and the rise of Aziru. We are not sure exactly how long, but it seems to have been a reasonable length of time. Long enough for life to go back to normal, for prosperity and trade to return, and for the old threats to diminish. Slowly, the towns and villages that had suffered in the recent chaos began to enjoy prosperity once more. It was then that the sons of Abdi Ashirta chose to strike. Sometime in Akhenaten's reign, possibly around year 10, Aziru and his brothers began to take Amaru in an aggressive direction once more. Their first moves are unclear, but it seems they started by visiting the neighbouring towns and leaders, and convincing them to ally or join with Amaru. Maybe the brothers offered perks, like greater access to trade, or maybe they bullied and coerced them. Either way, prominent towns and leaders began to make formal agreements with Amaru. Pretty soon, the sons of Abdi Ashirta held sway over several important lands. The Lebanese coast at this time was divided among several major cities. The most important were Byblos, a trade city from way back, and Sumer, the fortified bastion of Egypt's administration. Sumer was probably the most important town in the area, Byblos a close second. The Egyptian officials or commissioners used Sumer as their centre of operations, and it was where pharaoh's ships and troops landed when patrolling the region. Sumer was also the first target for any outside attacker. Right from the get-go, Aziru and his brothers focused on isolating the town of Sumer. They made alliances with the people living around Sumer, forming agreements with local leaders in order to deprive the Egyptian bastion of its support. This strategy was quite successful, and very soon, the Amorites had turned Sumer into a tiny outpost surrounded by hostile territory. 
We hear about this in a letter from one of Egypt's vassals observing the situation. South of Sumer, the mayor of Beirut was watching these affairs. Beirut, or Biruta in the local language, is a truly ancient city, one of the oldest continuously inhabited towns on earth. Back in 1350 BCE, Beirut was a small but noteworthy community. Its mayor, a man named Yapa Hada, observed the strategy which Aziru and his brothers were pursuing. He reported this, and his concerns, to the Egyptians. Quote, To the Egyptian commissioner, message of Yapa Hada, saying, Why have you become neglectful of Sumer? All of the lands between Byblos and Ugarit have become enemies in the service of Aziru. The towns of Shigata and Ampi are enemies. Aziru has stationed ships so that grain cannot be brought into Sumer, nor are we able to enter Sumer, so what can we do to help? Write to the king's palace about this matter. It is good that you be informed. End quote. Right out the gate, Aziru and his brothers began to re-establish the kingdom that their late father had created. Coastal towns like Shigata and Ampi were brought back into the fold. Smaller areas capitulated as well, and soon Aziru commanded followers throughout the region, from Byblos to Ugarit. Ugarit and Byblos themselves remained free, but everything between those cities was swallowed up by the resurgent Amorite kingdom. The mayor of Beirut, Yapahada, watched with alarm. As the sons of Abdi Ashirta began their conquests, another neighbour popped up to report on the situation. We've met this chap before, the mayor of Byblos, Rabadi, who had been the correspondent-in-chief during Abdi Ashirta's reign of terror. Rabadi sent dozens of messages to the Egyptian court describing events in Lebanon. Naturally, when Aziru and his brothers came along, Rabadi was quick to report. Quote, Say to the king, my lord, my sun god, message of Rabadi, your servant. May the king, my lord, know that Pu-Bakhla, a son of Abdi Ashirta, has occupied the city of Ulasa. The cities of Adarta, Wakhila, Ampi and Shigata are theirs also. All of the cities are theirs. So may the king send troops to Sumer until he gives thought to this land. End quote. Rabadi was no fool, he could see where this was going, and he warned the king that what had happened once could happen again. In the second half of that letter, Rabadi denounced his foes, and foretold the consequences if the king did not act soon. He said, quote, Who are the sons of Abdi Ashirta? Are they the king of Nubia, or the king of Matani, that they take the land of the pharaoh for themselves? Previously, they would take cities of the mayors, and you did nothing. Now, they have even driven out your commissioner, and have taken his cities for themselves. They are certainly going to take Sumer and kill the commissioner, and the garrison which is in Sumer. What am I to do? I cannot personally go to Sumer. The cities of Ampi, Shigata, Ulatza, and Awada are at war with me now. Should they hear that I was entering Sumer, they would attack me, and Byblos would be joined to the Apiru. End quote. Basically, the sons of Abdi Ashurta had captured numerous major communities, and were now using the resources of those towns to isolate Sumer and to starve it out. Once again, Rabadi talks about a group called the Apiru. These are the outlaws or refugees, quote-unquote, of Canaanite society. 
We met the Apiru in episode 123, where we explored their role and status in Near Eastern society. Also, we investigated the possibility that the Apiru are an early ancestor or proto-form of the biblical Hebrews. There is no firm conclusion on that question, no scholarly consensus, but it's possible. Either way, the Apiru brigands did not vanish with the death of Abdi Ashurta. They remained, in their small bands and communities, a potential source of manpower for whoever had the foresight to use them. Naturally, Aziru and his brothers took up that opportunity, and as the new war for Lebanon began, the Apiru were on the front lines. Aziru and his brothers surrounded the town of Sumer, using their allies to isolate the Egyptian bastion. The Lebanese mayors, including Rebadi, tried to send aid to Sumer. They dispatched ships, but these were waylaid by the vessels of Amaru. They sent messengers, but these were detained as well. And all the while, Aziru and his brothers were working to coerce and convince other leaders to join their kingdom in alliance. Eventually, the sons of Abdi Ashurta succeeded in taking one of Egypt's vassals. Not long after he sent his message to Egypt, the mayor of Beirut, Yapa Hada, decided to switch sides. Caving into pressure, he joined with the sons of Abdi Ashurta, lending his resources to theirs. This treachery was reported by Rabadi, who lamented that Beirut, like so many others, was now lost to the enemy. The mayor of Byblos reported dutifully what was happening. Quote, May the king take counsel concerning the king of Sumer. Behold, like a bird trapped inside a cage, thus is the city of Sumer. The sons of Abdi Ashurta, day and night, they are against it. All the property of Abdi Ashurta was given to his sons, so now they are strong, and they even took the ships of the army with their supplies. So I am unable to go to the aid of the city of Sumer. Furthermore, my lord, Yapahada is hostile to me because of my property that is with him. Yapahada does not let my ships go, nor can I send them to Sumer because of the enemy's ships. End quote. Sumer was caught like a bird in a cage, and the enemy's ships now patrolled the coast, preventing passage to any who opposed them. Rabadi sought to aid Sumer, but his efforts were blocked. Traffic on the eastern Mediterranean coast halted, which meant that supplies and grain shipments could not reach the beleaguered Egyptian bastion. Pretty soon, Egypt's outpost in Lebanon was effectively under siege. Aziru and his brothers swept to prominence rapidly. Like their father, they allied with local brigands, the Apiru, and began to coerce other leaders into joining them. The brothers were extraordinarily successful. Capitalizing on their late father's accomplishments, they were able to rebuild his kingdom quickly. Within just a few years of gaining power, the sons of Abdi Ashurta had brought Amaru back to regional prominence. What came next was, to put it mildly, a rapid slide into chaos and despair. Fun times. We now come to the end of chapter 1. After the break, the crisis deepens. Amaru was on the rise, and its neighbours were greatly concerned. Of course, none were more alarmed than Rabadi. The mayor of Byblos had seen this story before, and he was anxious to avoid a repeat. 
Unfortunately for him, Rabadi was not the only force at work. As Aziru and his brothers rebuilt their kingdom, the gods themselves made their own mark on events. While human agents wrought destruction, Lebanon and its people would suffer the devastating consequences of plague. That is chapter 2, after the break. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The year was approximately 1350 BCE. Maybe. It could have been earlier, could have been later. We don't know. What we do know is that sometime during the reign of Akhenaten, the kingdom of Amaru was back. After an early rise, a serious setback, and the death of Abdi Ashirta, a new generation had begun restoring its fortunes. The sons of Abdi had great success, inheriting their father's power and rapidly recovering much of what he had lost. Now, Aziru and his brothers were growing bolder. They isolated their enemies' towns, most notably the Egyptian bastion Sumer. Soon, the sons of Abdi Ashirta controlled much of the Lebanese highlands and the coast. As the rise of Amaru moved into its second phase, a local ruler watched, horrified, as history seemed to repeat. The mayor of Beblos, Rabadi, had witnessed the first rise, and he was in no mood to endure a second. As the sons of Abdi Ashirta began their expansion, Rabadi was quick to denounce them. He spoke of the, quote, sons of Abdi Ashirta, the dog of your house, and declared, quote, the sons of Abdi Ashirta are hostile to the king, end quote. As the mayor of Beblos observed this new generation, he clearly held no illusions about the threat that they posed. City-states, towns, and villages fell to Aziru and his brothers, and Rabadi reported to the king. When the mayor of Beirut, a noteworthy town, betrayed Egypt and went over to the Amorites, Rabadi reported to the king. And as Aziru's warriors and ships isolated the imperial bastion of Sumer, Rabadi reported it all. Quote, Rabadi says to his lord, the great king, king of all countries, I fall at the feet of my lord seven times and seven times. Gubla, or Byblos, is the loyal city of my lord since ancient times, and I am a footstool for the feet of the king. Now, as for Sumer, the war against it is severe, and it is severe against me also. Sumer is now raided up to its city gate. The enemy have been able to raid it, but they have not been able to capture it. I was in Sumer, and all of its people fled. May my lord send a commissioner and soldiers with him, so that they may guard the city. End quote. If we take this letter at face value, it appears that Aziru, his brothers, and their warriors were in the process of raiding the hinterlands. They could not capture the city of Sumer itself, for it was well fortified. 
but they could plunder the outlying villages and steal the crops. They could ransack homesteads and capture anyone outside the walls. Beyond the fortifications of the major towns, the authority of Egypt's representatives and their ability to guarantee security was rapidly collapsing. Naturally, this kind of crisis would have triggered migrations. Outside of the fortified towns, people living in farmsteads and villages were vulnerable to attack. Many families, even whole communities, would have fled as Aziru and his warriors spread across the region. Some may have gone to Sumer, others to Byblos, and many more may have tried to get as far away as possible. Either way, the population of the region was on the move, people crowded together, clustering in the areas they thought safe. Unfortunately, this kind of density triggered its own chaotic fallout. As the enemy warriors spread through the countryside, panicked families gathered their belongings and headed for safety. They collected their food, bundled up their valuables, and carried their children away from the threat. They also would have taken their animals. Bronze Age society was, in general, far more pastoral than the industrialized world. Animals and humans lived in much greater proximity, sharing the same fields and the same houses. The family home was also a stable for many kinds of livestock, whether it was the donkeys that carried their goods, the goats and sheep who provided their meat, or the cattle who dispensed milk. The people of this world lived in far closer contact with their animal providers. So, as the enemy despoiled farms, the farmers and their animals thronged towards the major towns. Crowds and herds moved towards Sumer and Byblos, and as they streamed through the gates, the cities rapidly filled to bursting. In crowded alleys and packed compounds, humans and animals rubbed against each other, in spaces that were never meant to hold such numbers. The infrastructure of these cities would have started to suffer. Sanitation, like drain pipes and waste dumps, would have broken down under a surging demand, and sewage waste would become an even greater problem in the towns. Naturally, the combination of overcrowding, widespread anxiety, and multi-species proximity soon led to disease. At some point in the days of Aziru, letters from the Syrian and Canaanite princes report the appearance of a plague, or Mutanu. We do not know where it started, but it appears in multiple spots simultaneously. From Lebanon to Cyprus to Egypt and Turkey, a pestilence began to afflict the communities. The Amarna letters give us a glimpse of what happened and how people responded to it. The Egyptian archives begin to reveal reports. From Lebanon, the first comes from Rabadi, or rather, from a message to Rabadi. This was written by one of the Egyptian governors. An imperial official, unnamed, had apparently asked Rabadi to take some men and donkeys from the town of Sumer to Byblos. Rabadi, though, refused, on the grounds that Sumer was experiencing an outbreak. To protect his city, the mayor of Byblos was unwilling to take the donkeys. The Egyptian governor was furious at Rebadi's refusal, and he wrote back sharply. The governor said, quote, Say to Rebadi, my son or servant, message of the general, your father. May the god show concern for you and your household. But as far as you're saying to me, quote, I will not permit men from Sumer to enter Byblos, for there is a plague in the town of Sumer. Well, 
I say to you, Rabadi, is this a plague affecting men or one affecting asses, donkeys? What plague affects asses so that they cannot walk? Watch yourself. Do the asses belong to the king or do they not? If the king is the owner of these asses, then look for them. Why do you act this way towards servants of the king? Send your men to guard Sumer. I am writing to the king about you. He is to reply to me by tablet concerning this whole affair. End quote. Yikes, Rabadi was in trouble, but not without good reason. As Sumer crowded with people and animals, the plague arrived as well. While some of the animals may have been unaffected, in this case the asses or donkeys, Rabadi was taking no chances. He refused entry to the men and sent them back to Sumer. For this, he was castigated. It is hard to fault Rabadi's response to the situation. The mayor of Byblos was a loyal vassal to Egypt, but his responsibility was, first and foremost, his own town. The people of Byblos and its animals were more important than the donkeys or asses of Sumer. No matter who the donkeys belonged to, in principle, Rabadi judged them a threat to his community. Faced with the prospect of plague, Rabadi tried to bar his gates to anyone coming out of Sumer. We do not know if he was successful, or if political pressure from the Egyptian governors overcame his reservations. All we know is that Rabadi tried to protest, and the imperial officials were having none of it. This plague was not isolated, there was no quarantine. The spectre of disease swept through the region unrestricted, striking down many in the towns and villages. It is hard to measure the impact based on the few references we have, but we do know that the plague travelled far. Not only did disease strike Lebanon, it even crossed the sea. Riding the ships and winds, the pestilence flew from the mainland until it reached the island of Cyprus. Cyprus, or Alashia in the ancient name, was a distant island in the eastern Mediterranean. It was famous for its copper, from which we get the Greek name Kupros, or Cyprus. And for many years, the Cypriots had sent their copper to Egypt. The king of Alashia reported to Akhenaten when plague came to his island. One of the letters discovered at Amana concerns a delivery of copper, which under normal circumstances would be a routine matter. Unfortunately, this delivery was going to be much smaller than usual, and the king of Alashia was anxious that the pharaoh not be alarmed or insulted by the deficit. Concerning the shortage of copper, he said, there was a very good reason. Quote, Say to the king of the land of Egypt, my brother. Thus, the king of the land of Alashia, your brother. May all be well with my brother, with your palace, your wives, your sons, your officials, your horses, your chariots, and within your lands, may all be very well. My brother, I have sent to you five hundred weights of copper. I have sent this copper to you as a greeting gift. Now, the amount of copper is small, but do not take it to heart. You see, the hand of Nurgle, my lord, is in my land. He has smitten all of the men of my land, and there are no copper workers left. So, my brother, may it not be taken to your heart that the amount of copper is small. Send your envoy back with my envoy, and whatever copper that you request, my brother, I will send it to you. End quote. Cyprus, it seems, was in trouble. According to this letter, the island was suffering under the Hand of Nurgle, 
Nurgle is a Mesopotamian god, whose authority expressed itself most clearly in the form of plague. Pestilence and disease spread at the whim of Nurgle, who, although filling many roles, is most commonly associated with the Near Eastern underworld. Nurgle is complicated, but his influence was clear to those living on the island. Plague struck the people of Cyprus, Alashia, and it hit their poor first. The miners, extracting copper from the hills, suffered easily from pestilence. Overworked, probably underfed, and living in cramped, unpleasant conditions, Cyprus copper workers and excavators perished in large numbers. Sadly, their king acknowledged their deaths mainly as a factor in his economic troubles. Sometimes, it seems that things will never change. But we can offer a prayer to these lost workers of Cyprus. Eventually, the disease passed. We are not sure when, but the references to plague vanish from the Amarna letters as suddenly as they appeared. Perhaps it was a small outbreak, perhaps the locals didn't report it as much as they should. Either way, the information disappears. We can only presume that eventually, life returned to normal. Well, as normal as it could be. For Reb Adi, these were dark days indeed. His neighbours on all sides had allied with Aziru, and once again, Byblos found itself isolated. To the north, the Egyptian bastion of Sumer was being raided, and if that bastion fell, then surely the lords of Amuru would turn their attention to Byblos itself. For the mayor, this was a time of great threat, as serious as that which Abdi Ashurta had presented just a few years ago. While he had endured these things before, we could forgive Rebadi if he was feeling more than a little dejected by the times in which he lived. The mayor of Byblos had seen much, and suffered many stresses and worries during his time in power. If he was feeling this way, then the pharaoh's response to one of his letters may have been even more discouraging. A couple of letters from Rebadi refer to a message which the king of Egypt sent to him. We don't have the message itself, but Rebadi quotes it, so we have a sense of what Akhenaten said with regard to Rebadi's many letters. Apparently, the pharaoh of Egypt complained, quote, You, Rebadi, are the one that writes to me more than all of the other mayors. Why does Rebadi keep sending a tablet this way to the palace? He is more distraught than his brothers about Sumer. End quote. Well, this was certainly disheartening. After all of Rabadi's efforts to keep the pharaoh abreast of events, his reward was a complaint. The king of Egypt grew tired of the mayor of Byblos, and the endless stream of tablets that issued forth from his town. Eventually, Akhenaten wrote back saying, in more polite terms, please, be quiet. It is hard to know what we should make of this. Perhaps Rabadi was sending too many messages. Certainly, his letters make up a significant chunk of the surviving Amana corpus. Out of 380 tablets identified so far, more than 60 come from the mayor of Byblos. So, yeah, he did write a lot. And maybe there were limits to Akhenaten's patience. I mean, how many times can you receive the same sort of message before you want to say, enough, I get it? Naturally, 
these messages have influenced how historians understand Akhenaten and his attitude towards the empire. For some scholars, the king of Egypt comes across as an inattentive ruler, one disinterested in the empire and its business. Well, that may be a mistake, and in an upcoming episode we will tackle that myth head-on. For now, it's enough to say that 1. Akhenaten was more active than people realise, and 2. The letters themselves are too fragmentary to allow such sweeping generalisations. So, we have to be careful with these interpretations, and this is a matter we'll come back to later. For now, let's keep our eye on Lebanon, on Aziru, Rebadi, and the chaos sweeping the region. The warriors of Amaru continued their raids into Sumer, and the mayor of Byblos continued to wait. While Rebadi dispatched his many letters, business elsewhere carried on. The Egyptian officials, the men on the ground administering the empire, were not complacent, nor were they lazy. They moved about constantly, checking in with different rulers and communities, and responding to the demands of their king and their allies. One of these governors now comes to our attention, for he confronted Aziru directly. In several letters from different sources, local leaders refer to an official that they call Paweru. This is a rendering of the Egyptian Pawer, meaning the great or the great one. It could be a name or it could be a title. If it's a name, well, Paweru must have had pretty audacious parents. If it's a title, then it's another instance of the Canaanites misreading an Egyptian word. For the sake of the story, we'll assume that it's the guy's name. Paweru, an Egyptian commissioner, appeared in the wake of his predecessor's death. He showed up in various parts of Canaan, visiting towns that you might recognise. Letters from the Canaanite vassals show Paweru visiting places like Gaza and Ashkelon, or Chazati and Ashkaluna in the local tongue. He also went to Jerusalem, or Urusalim, and met its ruler, a man named Abdi Heba. The Egyptian commissioner Paweru also came to Aziru's residence, and the new lord of Amaru reported this to the pharaoh. Quote, to the king, message of Aziru, I fall at the feet of the king, etc., etc. O king, my lord, Pawuru, the archer commander of the king, has reached me. Pawuru knows my loyalty, and may the son, the king, my lord, ask him about it. And whatever the request of the sun god, the king, I will do it. End quote. The visit of an Egyptian official did not seem to cause Aziru too much worry. The prince stuck to his guns, maintaining his claims of loyalty. Even as events around his kingdom spoke otherwise, Aziru was persistent in assuring that he was the pharaoh's loyal servant. Somehow, this seems to have worked, and we do not hear anything about Paweru castigating or punishing Aziru for what he was doing. Again, it's not clear what we should make of this. Perhaps the local situation was more complicated than we know. Perhaps Paweru was satisfied with what he saw during his visit. Or perhaps the visit actually took place before these events began. Again, we simply can't be sure. One way or another, Aziru was able to expand his kingdom while maintaining a public image of loyalty. Was the pharaoh convinced of this, or was he biding his time, waiting until Aziru slipped up and punishment could begin? Only time would tell, 
and we will tackle that very large topic in a future episode. For his own part, Aziru apparently thought that he was successful. When Paweru left his kingdom and went off to visit a neighbouring area, Aziru and his brothers continued their plotting. Soon after, they took an incredibly bold step. After visiting Aziru and receiving assurances of his loyalty, the commissioner Paweru went to the town of Sumer. Sumer was still being raided, even besieged by Aziru's warriors, but Paweru was able to enter the town and meet with its leaders. What followed is a murky but curious little incident. One of Sumer's leaders, an Egyptian commissioner named Hapi, may have felt that the city should surrender. The town was surrounded, and it seemed like no help was coming from Egypt. Perhaps it would be better to let Aziru command the city peacefully, rather than risk the destruction which would surely follow if he took it by force. Hapi, and perhaps others, tried to push Paweru towards surrender. Paweru refused. He would not go against the pharaoh so blatantly. Whether that was loyalty or fear of reprisal or both is unclear. What is clear is that soon after the debate ended, Paweru's life came to its end. The Egyptian commissioner was assassinated. A letter from Rebadi, mayor of Byblos, reports very briefly what happened. He said, quote, Paweru did not give the town of Sumer to the Apiru men, and so he was buried. End quote. In another message, Rabadi blamed the murder directly on Aziru and his brothers. He said, quote, May the king, my lord, not leave this year free for the sons of Abdi Ashirta, for you know all of their acts of hatred. Who are they that they have committed a crime and killed the commissioner Paweru? End quote. It's unclear exactly what happened here. Rabadi's first letter suggests that Paweru died because he refused to surrender his town. The second letter lays the blame more directly at the hands of Aziru and his brothers. Both of these might be true from different points of view. If Paweru died because he would not surrender, then the fact that his surrender was necessary is a result of Aziru's actions. Alternatively, if Paweru was killed by Aziru's warriors, their deeds were the responsibility of their leaders. Either way, it was Aziru and his brothers that created the conditions in which Paweru died, so they are responsible however you look at it. When Paweru died, the city that he was guarding, Sumer, opened its gates and surrendered. Aziru and his brothers took possession of the town, and the last holdout capitulated to their rule. At this moment, the sons of Abdi Ashirta re-established the kingdom their father had lost for good. Amaru was stronger than ever. We now come to the end of chapter 2. Up next, the crisis in Lebanon reaches its peak, again. Sumer has fallen. Everything Rabadi feared has come to pass. With the Egyptian bastion out of the way, the lords of Amaru would surely turn their attention to Byblos. Pharaoh must decide what to do, Rabadi must prepare for war, and if the mayor of Byblos does not get help, he will soon find himself under siege. Join me after the break for chapter 3. See you in a moment.
The year was approximately 1350 BCE. It was a dark time for Lebanon. The kingdom of Amaru was back, resurgent under the leadership of Aziru and his brothers. The sons of Abdiashirta had restored their father's territory, and now they turned their eye to Abdi's great rival. The city of Byblos and its leader Rebadi were the next logical target. Rebadi had sent many letters to the pharaoh, both Akhenaten and his father Amonhotep III before. He had alerted them to the threats that Amaru posed. Many times he had been disappointed in the response. The kings of Egypt had either ignored his pleas or given terse replies, belittling Rabadi for his alarmism and wishing that he would be quiet. Now, though, the mayor of Byblos was about to get some good news. Aziru and his brothers had committed a terrible act. Their siege of Sumer had resulted in the murder of an Egyptian official, the assassination of the commissioner Paweru. As a result of Paweru's death, the city that he guarded, Sumer, had opened its gates and surrendered. This deed was beyond anything that the Amorites had done before, and it demanded an Egyptian response. To Rabadi's great excitement, that response would be an army. Not long after the murder of Paweru, Rabadi heard news that a company, Pedjet, of Egyptian soldiers was on their way. He was overjoyed, and he said, quote, I have heard the words of the king, my lord, and my heart is overjoyed. May my lord hasten the sending of the archers with all speed. Who will resist the troops of the king? End quote. Rabadi may have been excited, but it looks as though the promised troops never arrived. They may have been waylaid, or perhaps they never departed. Or perhaps they departed, but for a different destination entirely. We can't be sure, but it seems that Rabadi followed up, sending an ambassador to Egypt to ask for the troops. Sadly, his ambassador returned empty-handed. The troops of Egypt remained in Egypt. Rabadi had failed to gain the military support he would need. When this happened, despair settled over the leadership of Byblos, and it wasn't long before members of Rabadi's court started whispering surrender. Rabadi was now an old man. He had ruled many years, and he had witnessed some truly historical days. As leader of the greatest city in Lebanon, heir to a long friendship with Egypt, Rabadi of Byblos might have expected to rule forever. Of course, all things pass, and so it was with him. Only, Rabadi did not die naturally. No, that would be too kind to the man that had seen so much. Instead, Rabadi had to endure one final trial before his life could come to its end. In his twilight years, the mayor of Byblos was the victim of a coup. Sometime around 1350 BCE, give or take, Rabadi's career as the ruler of Byblos came to its end. The fall was sudden. When the mayor was out of the city, visiting a neighbour, members of his family took control of the palace, barred the gates, and declared themselves in charge. When Rabadi returned to his home, he found himself exiled from his city. Overnight, one of Egypt's loyalist vassals was out of the game. Apparently, the conspirators acted out of fear. Fear of Aziru and the Amorites. Fear that their town would be the next target of rampaging warriors. We hear this from Rabadi himself, who, after his exile, promptly wrote to the pharaoh, recounting what had happened. 
In Rabadi's version of events, the coup went as follows. Quote, To the king, my lord, the message of Rabadi, your servant, the dirt at your feet. At the feet of the king, my lord, seven times and seven times have I fallen. May the king heed the words of his servant. Previously, the men of Byblos and my wife kept saying to me, Follow the sons of Abdi Ashirta so that we can make peace between us. But I refused. I did not listen to them. When the pressure got too tough for me, then I thought to myself, Let me make a treaty with Amunira. So I went to his house in order that I could make a treaty between us. But when I returned to my house, he, my brother, had locked me out. So may the king, my lord, take counsel concerning his servant. Day and night I wait for the regular army of the king. So may the king take counsel, because I have no other attitude. For the king I would die, so may the king give life to his servant. Furthermore, my two sons and two wives, they have been handed over to the rebel against the king. End quote. Rabadi may have described events in a way that made him look as good as possible. An act of treachery, sudden and unexpected, didn't exactly promise great things about his competency. So the former mayor of Byblos made it clear that his fall and exile were the product of fear, his own family members hoping to make peace with Aziru. It wasn't his fault, it was their cowardice that led to these events. Also, Rabadi had some thoughts about the role of Pharaoh in all of this. In another letter, he suggested some reasons why, maybe, the king of Egypt was also responsible for what had happened. In a rather brazen but desperate message, Rabadi said, quote, Rabadi speaks to the king, my lord. I have repeatedly written for garrison troops, but they have not been given, and the king has not heeded the words of his servant. So I sent my ambassador to the royal palace, but he returned empty-handed. He had no garrison troops. And when the men of my city saw that you did not even send silver to me, like you send to my colleagues, then they, the men of Byblos, reviled me. Moreover, when I had gone to visit Amoniri, my younger brother alienated the city of Byblos. He did this in order to give the city to the sons of Abdi Ashirta. Thus, treason was committed, and my brother expelled me from the city. May the king, my lord, not keep silent concerning the deeds of this dog. End quote. It seems like from Rabadi's perspective, the king of Egypt's failure to support him had come to its logical outcome. If Egyptian troops had been present, surely the Amorites would never have dared attack him. If the pharaoh had given silver, like he sent to so many other vassals, then at least Rabadi could maintain his prestige. It seems that Rabadi's position had deteriorated, and lacking pharaoh's support, he had finally lost his power. In a situation like this, with his home gone, you might expect Rabadi to have visited Egypt directly. Sadly, the former mayor of Byblos was too old, and he was suffering from illness as well. So, begging Pharaoh's pardon, Rabadi sent one of his sons in his stead. The young man carried his father's message, which continued as follows. Quote, now I am unable to enter the lands of Egypt. I have grown old, and the disease is strong in my body. And the king, my lord, knows that the gods of the city of Byblos are holy. 
The illness is strong because I have committed my sins against the gods. Thus I do not enter the presence of the king, my lord. I hereby send my own son into the presence of the king. May the king hear the words of his servant, and may he grant soldiers so that they may retake the city of Byblos. There are many men in Byblos that support me, few are rebels within. When the pharaoh's troops come forth and the men hear it, then the city will return to the king, my lord. End quote. I am no politician, but when Rabadi says that he is too sick and too old to travel, that doesn't fill me with confidence in his ability to rule. A man of his age, surely, was not long for this world. Whether by enemy blades or natural pestilence, Rabadi's life would probably be coming to its end sooner rather than later. If I were making the call on whether to send troops in aid of such a man, well, it would be difficult to have confidence that everything would work out. After all, who is to say that Rabadi would still be alive a year, a month, or even a week from now? The former mayor of Byblos was loyal to Egypt, and such things are precious in the world of politics. Nevertheless, the last letters of Rabadi paint a somewhat pitiful picture of a man who has lost everything and has not the strength to regain it. As a last resort, Rabadi was willing to bargain. Byblos was rich in gold and silver, and the property of its temples was lucrative. Surely, if the Egyptians reclaimed the city, then all of that could be theirs. Just let Rabadi have his town back. Quote, May my lord know that I would die for him. When I was in the city, I guarded it for my lord, and my heart was devoted to the king. It was not my heart that gave the city to the sons of Abdi Ashurta. May the king, my lord, not turn away from his city. It is very great in silver and gold. There is much property belonging to the temple of its gods. If the king, my lord, seizes the city, he may do with his servant whatever he will. For this may he grant the city of Byblos as my dwelling. End quote. Despite the promises of wealth, the Egyptian government did not act. Rabadi waited for over a year, hoping that Pharaoh's troops would come to his aid. He wrote another long letter to the king, explaining what had happened, and reassuring the Pharaoh that people in Byblos were still loyal to him. If only Egyptian troops would appear, they would take Rabadi back, and the city would be restored. If only. Sadly, no help came. Perhaps the Pharaoh was preoccupied with other conflicts. Perhaps he was not overly concerned about the loss of one vassal. If Aziru had convinced the Egyptian court that he was a loyal servant, then Rabadi may have fallen out of favour. After all, from one perspective, Rabadi's reign in Byblos was a long tenure of complaints, with little decisive action to show for it. The mayor had sent letter after letter after letter, nagging the pharaoh for more resources, and consistently showing that he was incapable of defending his own territory. With parts of the Near East racked by conflict, and the Hittites growing in power, Akhenaten's officials may have preferred that Lebanon be led by a strong prince. Either way, the Egyptians did not send an army. Rabadi waited in vain. What happened next is unclear, but it seems that Rabadi travelled to the town of Sidon. 
Sidon is about 40 kilometers south of Beirut and is one of Lebanon's largest cities today. Unfortunately, Sidon was ruled by friends of Amaru and the sons of Abdi Ashirta. Soon after he arrived, Rabadi died. Most likely, he was murdered. The last days of Rabadi's life are murky at best, but they reveal the extent of his desperation. Exiled from his home and seemingly abandoned by Egypt, the former mayor of Byblos spent more than a year living in different towns. Eventually, his determination broke down and his loyalty to Pharaoh wavered. In order to regain his home, Rabadi was even willing to beg help from Amaru. Rabadi went to the town of Sidon, whose leaders had made peace with the Amorites. There, he apparently wrote a letter to Aziru, promising to give him wealth if the prince made him mayor of Byblos once more. The letter allegedly said, quote, Take me and get me into my city. There is much silver there, and I will give it to you. Indeed, there is an abundance of everything, but not with me at the moment. End quote. This letter does not come from Rabadi directly. It is a second-hand report. If the quote is accurate, it is a major revelation. In his last days, the exiled mayor of Byblos was willing to treat, even with his enemy, if it meant regaining his home. That is quite the turnaround from his earlier defiance. I guess hard times will whittle down even the strongest of commitments. With no help coming from Egypt, Rabadi perhaps saw no other option. He asked Aziru to restore his authority. Aziru did not help Rabadi. Instead, he allowed the rulers of Sidon to do with the mayor as they saw fit. Soon after, Rabadi was dead, and the circumstances point pretty strongly to murder. It was a sad end for a once devoted servant. Rabadi was dead. His city had surrendered to Aziru and his brothers. And with this coup, the career of a prominent Egyptian vassal came to its end. Rabadi's tale is somewhat melancholy, and it may seem that his legacy would be the same. Was he a victim of circumstance, a failure in political terms, or simply one more casualty in an unusually chaotic time? It's hard to say for sure. At first glance, Rabadi's letters seem to paint a picture of doom and despair. The vassal wrote continuously to the pharaoh, complaining of issues in the region. He begged for assistance, lamented the failure of governors to tackle the Amorite threat, and he cajoled the pharaohs to send troops. Rabadi's relationship with Amunhotep III and then Akhenaten is difficult to untangle. The Amarna letters tend to show the messages to the pharaoh. There are very few copies of the royal replies. We know that the Egyptians made these copies, but it seems that the Amarna letters are the ones left behind when the government moved away from Akhenaten's city. Apparently, the scribes responsible for royal correspondence kept many messages that were sent by the king, but discarded many that he had received, particularly the ones that were out of date by the time the city was abandoned. So we probably have most of Rebadi's messages, but none of the pharaoh's replies. Because of this selective discarding, we do not know much about the royal attitude to their vassal in Byblos. 
We got a glimpse of it in chapter 2, when the pharaoh, apparently, complained about how many messages Rabadi was sending, and how often he was complaining. Was that the king's general attitude, that Rabadi was a nuisance? Or was it a rare outburst at a stressful time? Again, we can't be sure, so we have to be careful before we judge Rabadi harshly, or assume that Egypt did not care about him. As for Rabadi himself, he may seem like a political hypochondriac, the sort of boy who cried wolf, and that was a common description of him in earlier scholarship. Nowadays, more recent studies focusing on the language of Rabadi's letters, and the patterns of his messages, suggest that the ruler was actually more cunning than he may seem. Rabadi was not shooting from the hip, as it were. He didn't fire off letters without thinking it through carefully. Instead, the mayor of Byblos crafted his messages, and his language, to each situation, and particularly to what he was trying to achieve. Sometimes the mayor was more interested in demonstrating his loyalty and his service, and proving that he was a much better vassal than those other Canaanite rulers. At other times, Rabadi crafted his words in order to gain a reward, whether he was asking for soldiers, grain, or simply friendly acknowledgement, the mayor altered his grammar and syntax to get what he desired out of a situation. So, Rabadi was not necessarily some panicky alarmist. He had his own goals, and he pursued these in various ways. Bearing that in mind, it is true that Rabadi's rule over Byblos ended in a form of political failure. The coup which toppled him from within his own family was a disappointing end for one who had survived dangerous times. Your reading of this situation will probably depend on your own values and how you view political relationships. From one perspective, Rabadi might be a fool to oppose Aziru and not make a profitable peace. From another perspective, Rabadi might have been a fool to break his relationship with the pharaoh. To go against Egypt would have been dangerous in a whole other way. I'll leave it to you to decide which one you prefer. So, after many years of loyal service, the mayor of Byblos, Rabadi, was dead. He was buried, perhaps by his son, and his soul passed to the afterlife. In the kingdom of Nurgle, Rabadi joined many who had lost their lives in these dark days. I hope that he found rest. The fall of Rabadi was yet another entry in the long list of crimes that we lay at the doors of Aziru. The son of Abdi Ashirta and his brothers had gone further than their father ever dreamed. Their ambitions are clear in their deeds, and their treachery seems far more brazen. For every leader that they cajoled to their side, every town they isolated or attacked, for every vassal and Egyptian commissioner whose death they caused, Aziru and his kin crossed one line after another. Whether they saw themselves as genuine servants of the pharaoh, or former vassals striking out for independence, the deeds of these men are a black mark on the history of Egypt's empire. Surprisingly, these tumultuous events would not mark the end of their careers. The sons of Abdi Ashirta would continue their work and take the political fallout as it came. There would be consequences, but those would come later, and we will return to their story in a future episode. For now, we must leave Lebanon to its affairs. This chapter 
comes to an end. On the next episode, it is time to return to Egypt. While Lebanon was far away, the events which transpired there had effects on the land of the Nile. Most notably, the Hand of Nurgle, the plague that struck the region, was going to make its way to Egypt. Before too long, pestilence would be knocking at Pharaoh's door. On the next episode, we return to Akhet Aten, and begin Phase 3 in the reign of Akhenaten, King of Egypt. We are entering a turbulent period, with many changes in the political landscape. So, to set ourselves on the right track, we must get the lay of the land, and also spend some time with a woman who has been important, but mostly background until now. Join me soon for episode 125, in which we get to grips with the power and wealth of the king's eldest daughter, his favourite child, and a potential heir to his power. It is time to meet the Princess Merit Aten. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. While you're here, there is an event coming up that I think you should know about. It's called Intelligent Speech, and it's a conference of podcasters taking place online this June. It's going to be a wonderful day with many excellent speakers to meet. The conference will take place on June 27th from 10am to 6pm Eastern Standard Time. That's the time zone of New York where the conference usually takes place. There will be multiple streams on a wide range of topics. There will be solo presentations and roundtable discussions. You'll have the opportunity to submit questions on topics that the podcasters have presented, and generally get to know a little bit of behind the scenes from some of your favourite presenters. The Intelligent Speech Conference brings together speakers from a variety of backgrounds, and yours truly will be taking part. I'll be participating in a panel of shows related to ancient history, and I'm also presenting my own topic titled Dead and Buried Voices, Ancient Egypt Beneath the Surface. Now, here's the best part. Early bird tickets to the conference are available now, and you can get them for just 10 US dollars. For 8 hours of entertainment and discussion, that is one heck of a bargain. To purchase a ticket, follow the link in the episode description, or visit intelligentspeechconference.com and click the Book Now button. That's intelligentspeechconference.com. I hope to see you there. The music for this episode was written and performed by Derek and Brandon Feichter, who produce wonderful soundtracks evoking fantasy lands of the past and future. The song in this episode was Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves from their album Desert Sands. Follow the link in the episode description for more of their tunes. This episode was brought to you by Linda, Neil, Andrea, and Ellen, my priest-level backers on Patreon. Folks, you are too generous. Thank you for your ongoing support. May the gods of Amaru and Mesopotamia bless your crops, drive away the pestilence, and keep your household safe. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed the story. Lion. 
Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.